This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. I continue to hope that you are having a great new year and that you are having more success at keeping your New Year's resolution than I have had. I only made one. I told my mom and my wife that I would have uh, very, very good language at all times. Not that I usually don't, but anybody that plays golf from time to time uh, will slip up. But that's my New Year's resolution is not to slip up. Um, and so my mom and my wife are happy with me or as happy as a wife can be. Let me say that. So if you think serving in Congress looks miserable, what if you had to cover Congress on a daily basis? For the rest of us, when... Not if, but when we get tired of all the faux drama and the soap opera antics, we can turn it off. We don't have to watch anymore. Don't have to participate. Our guest today covers Congress for a living. That's one of her jobs. She covers other things, too, but she covers Congress. So she's there. You've actually seen her, even if you did not know who she was. Well, if you watch my show, you do know who she is. But. Right in the middle of impeachment, there she is. Right in the middle. I mean, to be a journalist at this stage in her career and to have witnessed all of the different things she has witnessed, you could live like 100 years and not see what she's seen in a lot less than 100 years. So I wanted to have her on so we could take a look at 2024 in the People's House and in the Senate because she also knows what's going on in the Senate. And her name is Olivia Beavers, and she works at Politico. And uh, she's a, a guest on my show every time I can book her and afford her, because she, she knows what's going on. And I will say this before I bring her in. I, from time to time, um, am critiquing of our national media. I think that's a fair word. I am critiquing of it. But I will say this. I could not tell you her politics. If you held a gun to my head and said, you have to tell me if Olivia leans left or right, I I would have to tell you to go ahead and shoot me. Because I don't know. She did a very, very good job, at least when I was there, of trying to be balanced. And I don't know if there's a huge market for that anymore, but I like it. I like people who are balanced. So, therefore, I like Olivia. Olivia, how are you? I hope I have not crushed your career, particularly I hope no one, none of your bosses <laughs> at Politico hear that I like you, so you can edit that part out. I just want to make you my hype man with that kind of introduction. Thank you. Well, it's all true. So, all right. First things first, and you know I'm old and my memory's not what it once was. So, I'm trying to remember, like, do you remember 
when they got rid of Kevin McCarthy? Can you remember back that far? That's that's in some semi recent history. Time time is like a flat circle here, but yes. All right. So you like True Detective also? Yes. Time is a flat <laughs> circle. You are correct. <laughs> or the short story, The Egg. Either one. It doesn't matter. We both agree. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> flat circle. All right. So I recall listening to the grievances mm-hmm. leveled against then Speaker McCarthy, and I watch what's going on now with now Speaker Mike Johnson, um, who, by the way, supported Kevin in January on every ballot, mm-hmm. was not part of the gang that got rid of him, um, I think was supportive and understanding and wanted Kevin to do well. So in no way, shape, or form is Mike Johnson responsible for Kevin McCarthy not being speaker, but he is a speaker now. Yep. It looks to me like some of the exact same things are happening, but yet not with a motion to vacate. Yep, I think you're you're correct. And we've we've sort of been seeing this happening since Mike Johnson took this position. First, they sort of said, you know, we're going to give him a grace period. We're going to let him get his, you know, his sea legs. But then they made the recent they made the recent agreement for the top lines. And you're almost sort of seeing a similar kind of um, moments where Johnson will enter the conference and make a pitch being like, hey, we have a two seat majority. We're not going to get our Christmas list of what we want. I remember when Kevin McCarthy would walk in there and say, hey, this is the best I can get if we want to avoid a shutdown and do what's best for our party, especially in an election cycle. But Johnson is sort of feeling the same kind of deja vu moments that Kevin McCarthy did, which is anything that he sort of negotiates that would keep the government funded, that might have a pass, like a chance of passing both chambers and being signed into law, that's not palatable to his right flank. Now, I do ask them what they think, whether he's going to get the motion to vacate. And a few of them are, are saying it's not off the table, but I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of bluster at the moment, which they were with Kevin McCarthy for a while too. So it's hard to discern when they actually mean they mean to act on the threat. But one of the differences that they will say is they feel like they can trust Mike Johnson more and They'll also argue that maybe he just needs a new team around him because they say, you know, we elected this conservative. Maybe he's just getting the wrong advice. So they're they're kind of coming up with excuses, but they are already taking to kind of making this public criticism in a way that we've already seen them do before for McCarthy. You know, I find that fascinating. And the reason I have this little smirk on my face is I'm thinking back to my old days as a prosecutor and whether or not it would work. If someone said, yes, you both robbed my store, but I really trusted one of you that robbed my store before you did it. So therefore, that's somehow different. If you engage in exactly the same activity, the fact that they trust Mike John, I mean, look, I trust Mike Johnson, too. I mean, he's he's a really, really good guy. But to me, and it doesn't really matter what I think, because I'm not my guest today. You are. They cannot afford to get rid of another speaker. They ju- they can't do it. It was so a lot of what happened last time, I think, was personal. I think the person who filed mm-hmm. the motion to vacate had and continues to have personal animus towards Kevin McCarthy. It is hard to have any animus towards Mike Johnson. So it was almost like a ruse. I mean, I remember 
I remember listening on the floor of the House. One of the reasons we're going to get rid of Kevin McCarthy is because he has not sent a subpoena to Hunter Biden. Mm -hmm. And yet Chairman Jordan and Chairman Comer are the two people who would send the subpoena to Hunter Biden. And neither one of them, like nobody lifted a finger, nor should they have. But it just seemed like a ruse with Kevin. And so they can't do that again. You know, so I I had this conversation with a, a Republican source of mine. That's the thinking with the rank and file, especially during a presidential election year, especially going into primaries. But that's not necessarily how some of these um, people on the right think. They think, you know, we might be able to find someone else. What they can't do or really sort of the, the message to them is they need to have a plan in place if they ever use this again, because they felt like three weeks was just severely damaging and blowing back on the eight where you saw one person going for the speakership and then they're blocked and another and then another. Um, but they're not after so much the good of the broader party. They claim to be purists. They claim to, you know, at times I think they're, they're driven by the attention of fundraising and grassroots and other sort of feedback systems than more of being a team player or they're just fighting to keep a primary opponent, which means, you know, going against whoever is a GOP leader. And um, Rich McCormick of Georgia, he was telling me, he goes, it, it doesn't matter who's in that office. They're going to get torn apart. Um, it, it's it's the same bodily, the body is functioning the same, um, which is meaning that they're going to just have to deal with the the right that, that doesn't like the policies that they're going to craft. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm trying to think right now who would be in the rubiest red district in the whole house. Whose district would be R plus, you know, like 100? Mm-hmm. And I don't know who's it, whose district that is, but... Probably, I don't know, Texas, Louisiana, South Carolina. So, somebody is in a, like an R plus 20 district. Yep. And how different it is to run in that district versus someone who is in a district where Biden won by four points. Oh, it's so different. <laughs> so, so the majority makers is what we used to call them. The reason that you're in the majority is people that are in tough districts. They're not in ruby red district. You're going to get a Republican no matter what. It's just a kind of like a question of which one. Yep. Which makes me wonder, like, is life easier in the minority? Because you still get to be on television. You still get your notoriety. You still get to be like an activist hero, but you have no responsibility to govern. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I would certainly say it's a little bit easier. You're, you're, you're at that point, all you have is messaging. So messaging, messaging and campaigning um, and, and trying to block the, the party that is in the majority. So but that's why governing is hard, especially when you don't have that many seats to do it. And we're watching a reality where even Speaker Johnson, the majority with Emmer, who was responsible for counting votes, 
they both had messages about attendance because two seats is incredibly hard. And that basically means almost any one member has power to tank or pull a bill in a certain way. Like you talked about with the majority makers, they're saying we're trying to survive and we're already being pushed to take certain votes that aren't that palatable for marketing back home. But then the Freedom Caucus will tank a rule because they're upset that a bill's not conservative enough. You know, not only are they not palatable back home, they have precisely zero chance of ever becoming law because you don't have the Senate and the president is not going to sign it into law. So you you take all of this risk for zero chance of reward. I mean, I don't get the the logic of it. Nobody gets because it's illogical. I don't get the politics of it. But let me ask you about. All right. So so. The, the leader of, of what I call the crazy eight, not you, that is me that says that. Uh, I served on the ethics committee. It is uh, notoriously. You poor soul. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I did. I, they, Boehner asked me to serve on it and said, at the end, you can have whatever you want. And then Paul asked me to stay on and he said, you can have whatever you want. And what I wanted was to leave. That is what I wanted. It is the and then Radcliffe. Everyone took my loves place. doing your you have to investigate your friends. Oh, and your friends love it too. You're yeah. so popular. But they're notoriously tight lipped, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, they're unanimous, but they're also kind of slow. Yes. So in terms, I mean, you gotta be mindful. Their primaries coming up, general elections coming up. So they have issued some reports. They issued a, a report on uh, George Santos. The, you know, McCarthy kept saying that Gates was mad at him over an ethics matter. Is there any murmuring at all that anything is forthcoming? Is there any, I'm not asking you to dime out because you wouldn't do it if I did, but is there any like rumblings that the ethics committee is going to release anything in that regard? From my understanding, that's ways off still. Yeah. I know that there's the the people who are still very mad about Mac Bates uh, for ousting McCarthy. I know they're eager for it to come out. They want it sooner rather than later. And some of them are almost kind of undercutting their message. They're basically like, if this is damning, we're going to try to kick out Matt Gates, um, which, you know, then he can then turn and run on. But um, and, and claim that it's unfairly trying to to go after him in, in a witch hunt sort of way, but um, I don't think it's it's immediately forthcoming. Yeah, I, I mean it, it. It that is. I mean, you hear investigation. You got to find witnesses. You have to get them to cooperate. It, it's not like a grand jury subpoena where you can nope. go like send a marshal to come do it. It is. I mean, I do understand why it is slow, but I also. Uh, and sometimes it's so slow that by the time they reach a decision, it's no longer relevant. The person mm-hmm. may not be in the House anymore. Um, all right, we'll move on to something. Lloyd Austin, I, I try to be fair, which is one of my great weaknesses. P- people are necessarily private about health issues. They just yeah. are. But everyone is not like the Secretary of Defense. Yep. So I, I also get and it seems like the media is not happy about being kept in the dark. The Republicans are not happy about it. Democrats may not be happy about it. They but are, is it yeah. is it real anger or is it I mean, it's not the kind of anger that leads to somebody being dismissed, is it? 
I think the White House has already argued that they would not push for him to resign, nor that would they accept him putting forward a letter of resignation. But I think there is a general concern over his, not just his communication broadly to the public. The White House was unaware of his prostate cancer diagnosis until Tuesday. And he had gotten this diagnosis um, in in December. And they only recently, they found out in a delayed way about um, him being hospitalized. His deputy, I think the hospitalization happened on January 1st, and she didn't find out until January 4th. And then like there were no public statements at the time. So there was an entire sort of breakdown of communication for someone who is handling some major, major portfolio uh, as defense secretary and, and heading the Pentagon. Now, we don't see bipartisanship <laughs> that much on the Hill no, anymore. No. But surprisingly, everyone is mad about being kept in the dark. And the way that he notified as, you know, it being sort of an elective surgery at the last possible moment has angered Democrats and Republicans alike. So Mike Rogers is launching an investigation in the House Armed Services Committee at the you know urging of Matt Gates. And in the Senate, you have um, the Democratic chairman, Jack Reed, also saying he's been very mind blown by this lack of disclosure from him. So, you know, at least there's something that they do agree on, which is Austin really mishandled the situation. Oh, I don't want to play the devil's advocate only because everybody needs a lawyer and because I like doing it. I came so close to being a doctor. It was all, math and science are the only two things that kept me from going to medical school. Other th- other than making D's in math and science, I was really on my way there. Yeah. So I do know enough to know what the word elective means. And I never think of the word elective in the same sentence with cancer. Mm-hmm. So when I read that it was elective surgery, I mean, he has prostate cancer, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not look, I'm. I'm Partly being the devil's advocate, but also trying to understand, because I like to understand why people do and don't do what they do. Is there a reason why he would not let his boss know? I know why he would not let Politico know or the Mm -hmm. Washington Post or Fox. I know that. I don't know why that. I know you don't. (laughs) But I I mean, my friends got a headache and sent out a fundraising email. My friends have no medical secrets. They would fundraise off of anything. But everyone's not like that. So the need for privacy, the desire for privacy, I don't get not telling your boss. Is there any explanation coming from his camp as to why? They haven't really given that much of an answer. I think that the ones that they have pointed to is that he is just private about his health. Um, But you're in a different situation when you are in a top tier government cabinet role. If you are perhaps in a major elected position, you are representing or you are a service, um, providing service to the people and people rely on you. I mean, uh, his deputy, I think, was taking over his responsibilities multiple times before she knew what it was over. So, I mean, there was definitely just some sort of breakdown. And you can't just sort of claim, well, it's personal when you know, you're, we're dealing with Israel, we're dealing with the Houthis, we're dealing with a bunch of different stuff that's going on overseas that our military is dealing with. 
No, I would definitely lose this argument, and I don't even believe the argument. I, I think he absolutely should have let at least the White House and the Gang of Eight know in, in Congress. I mean, I understand not letting a backbencher from wherever know, but usually people that successful are smart enough to like know when everybody expects them to do. So I, I hold out like this, this slight sliver of, is there an explanation for why you would not tell the commander in chief? And I can't think of one, especially as you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. It is, but you know, I also, you know, sometimes when you watch politics, especially as a reporter and, and you watching it sort of back, you'll watch politicians and government officials do things where you think, what were you thinking? Like, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you just inform your boss? Why wouldn't you just do this? And yet there's sort of this, what you come to realize is this human element to each of these people. They might be brilliant when it comes to policy, but somehow they just always have a communication breakdown or something like that. And so when you are in these jobs, you get to watch the more human element, which is the flaws. And that's what you get to see more and more, the more you spend 10 hours in a basement, you know, just waiting for a few members to walk out after <laughs> gobbling down a sandwich and, and a Diet Coke. <laughs> oh, my Lord, you spent 10 hours in the basement waiting for someone to walk by you and say no comment. And you, <laughs> yeah. and you sit there and do it with a smile on your face and you act like that's really, really what journalism like should teach people <laughs> is that those 10 hours can sometimes uh -oh. just be get nothing. My Lord. All right. So we're going to do a little speed round. In other words, that means I'm going to talk less and you're going to talk more. Uh, fractures, fissures within the GOP conference, uh, they were on full display in the fall after uh, the McCarthy thing. Mm -hmm. I hear they still exist. Do you hear they still exist? I know they still exist. I mean, <laughs> look no further than social media. And um, Mike Johnson saying, please don't attack me on social media. Just air your grievances internally. And then members walk out and shoot off a tweet. So <laughs> welcome to the fractures. There's the one-on-one the -on -one sort of grudges that you see, but there's also the very different political groups that just seem to clash. And um, like you mentioned, the eight, but they're kind of seen largely as politically toxic for a lot of the rank and file members who have not forgiven them for the drama and the headaches that that caused. And um, it also scared away donors. So that really angered a lot of Republicans who are fighting in general or primary races. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. You know, Speaker Johnson and I served on judiciary together. I don't pretend for a second that we were super close. I I, I respect him a lot. He's mm -hmm. a very thoughtful, nice guy, always yeah. prepared. And, you know, regardless of whether our spiritual views are identical or not, and mine would not be identical with anyone's. I mean, he's right. The book he subscribed to says, bring your grievances to, to one another in private first. Now, I'm not sure how many of those self-described evangelical Christian colleagues he has have read that particular verse, but I'm not surprised they went to, to X before they went to the speaker. Yeah, this fighting it out in public, I, I, I don't get that. But we're going to do it anyway, even though I don't get it. All right, rash of retirements. Some are mm -hmm. easy. These are chairpersons who are term limited. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing more than just that? Is there a like a 
a disquietness, a discontent with the job? And do you expect any more in the days and weeks to come? I was already told to expect more. Um, They're not saying who, but it can be from redistricting, which is still going on in certain states. If they get a seat that's not going to be easy to win, you might see retirement. If there's some who are just so tired of the drama and they've been home over the holidays and they've been with family and they're sitting there thinking, do I really want to be out there fighting and doing all these fundraising just to get back there and and feel like we're fighting with ourselves again. There's almost this like concern about Republicans cannibalizing themselves um, kind of like they did last year. Uh, and then there's, there's people who are just sort of, they've been around for a while and they said, you know what? I'm tired. I want to go make money on K street and cash out. So I think we're at 38 retirements. If you look, there's more Democratic retirements in the House, um, but a lot of them are running for higher offices, mostly the Senate, but maybe, you know, Abigail Spanberger running for governor of Virginia, some attorney general, attorneys general. Um, in the House, there's only about four out of sort of like the 16 that are running for higher office. And so I think that that's sort of an, of an indicator that they're, they're ready to just cut loose of D.C. Yeah, I think I read that Larry Bouchon is retiring. Is that yes. Right? Which, I mean, he's like a heart doctor, so he should have known not to run for Congress in the first place. <laughs> I mean, if you're smart enough to be like a heart doctor, what were you doing there in the first place? I can say that. He was a classmate and a friend. Brad Winstrip, too. They're they're leaving. All yeah. the doctors are leaving. So. Well, I mean, good gracious. Between dealing with insurance companies or dealing with the Republican conference, I mean, what would you pick? Apparently, they're picking insurance companies. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I wanna ask you about maybe some involuntary retirements. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is probably the worst person I have ever seen at carrying a grudge. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He actually, like, believes that. He thinks it's not mine. It's somebody else's. Mm -hmm. He's awful at carrying a grudge. I watched it firsthand. However, it's hard to keep up with, like, 230 or 240 people that you're mad at. It's not that tough to keep up with eight. Mm -hmm. So my guess is, I don't know this for sure, so Kenny Buck is not running for re-election. Right. And I've known Kenny a long time. I actually, I, I, I very much personally like Kenny, even when we disagree on things. I like him very much personally. So we'll leave him out of it. Are you hearing anything about the, I mean, the other seven? Like Bob Good in Virginia, I think is a DeSantis guy. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that a Trump person is not going to challenge him in that district. I can't imagine it. Oh, well, they already did. <laughs> okay, well, see there, I was right. Yep. You have uh, John McGuire of Virginia um, challenging him. There is sort of an interesting dynamic where Donald Trump holds grudges. And if Kevin McCarthy decides to hold the grudge, Kevin McCarthy has a lot of money and Trump has a lot of name recognition, especially in certain parts, like the Bible Belt of that district in Virginia. So if those two combined... Bob Good could have a tough re-election campaign. Um, and so I think that that's definitely one to watch. Another one is Nancy Mace. So Mace was sort of the biggest surprise of the eight. She's not sort of in the right wing. 
but she had grievances with McCarthy. And so when the vote came around, she'd sort of been teasing it, but no one was really thinking that she would vote to oust him. And then sure enough, she did. And so she might be facing, you know, someone who might be recruited to challenge her. She's seen as vulnerable. I think that McCarthy or his allies are at least trying to see which ones are trying to, uh, you know, are, are basically able to be ousted from their seats because some of them are in very safe districts and will be reelected and they're more popular from kicking out McCarthy. But there are others where he can put his money and his, his, uh, his allies into putting forward someone. You know, I, I am familiar, obviously, Congresswoman Mace is from South Carolina. That was a that was a head scratcher uh, for many people in South Carolina, whether it should have been or not. It was. And then the Jimmy Jordan in the aftermath of that, uh, Jimmy, I believe she opposed on. Uh, I mean, she look, I give her credit. She's done work on behalf of sexual assault victims that's an issue near and dear to my heart as a former prosecutor. I, I give her a lot of credit for working on that, for bringing awareness to sexual assault. I think that's why she said she could not support Jimmy, if I remember correctly. And then I look up and see that she has partnered with Congressman Gates. And all of a sudden, I have some incongruence going through my mind. So is there... I mean, I should know because I live in South Carolina, but I don't because I don't follow this stuff as closely as you. I mean, is there or do you hear that there may be primary opponents for some of the seven? Yeah, I think the well, we know Bob Good has one. He's already declared and he's running. I think we're looking at Mace and Crane as maybe some of the races, the other two kind of big races to watch. Um, I'm not sure if we've seen a name appear in either of those, but um, that doesn't mean that there's not an effort underway to suss out who might be able to to take them on and see if they can find someone who can put up a fight in the primary. With Crane, you're not going to be running to the right of him, but you know, seeing if you can have some sort of challenge in the primary. And Rosendale is considering whether or not to run in the Republican primary for Senate in Montana, right? Yes, but he's not the favored kind of Senate Republican pick with the the, the campaigns. So that would be Tim Sheehy. And Rosendale lost the last time he ran against Tester, if memory serves me correctly. Not that I, I follow memory this is stuff. correct. <laughs> not that I follow this stuff, but, <laughs> but if. All right, let me ask you, closer to home, uh, uh, Congressman William Timmons is in the upstate of South Carolina, Greenville, uh-huh. Spartanburg, which is where I live. Congressman Jeff Duncan both uh, made the news for things that you don't necessarily want to make. Well, not even don't necessarily. You don't want to make the news for. Any other primaries aside from the, the we'll call them the Gang of Seven now, because Kenny is is not running again. Any other pri- any other Republican primaries that you're hearing about? Yeah, I think um, you know Timmons is facing a primary opponent that you just mentioned, um, but some of them that are also interesting to watch is still fallout from the speakership race because. Um, you know, I think some members are facing some of the ones who opposed Jim Jordan, who is sort of a grassroots 
baby dolls are coming to my head, but that's definitely not the right. No, he's a darling, hero. darling, darling. Oh, he's a hero. Oh no, Jimmy for the for, for the for GOP activists. Jimmy is a hero. Yeah, he's so well beloved, and there was definitely still an apparatus. And I think some of the people who opposed him becoming speaker are now facing primary opponents because of it. So that gave the grassroots sort of a uh, you know motion to to find someone who would you know campaign basically being like they they oppose Jim Jordan. They don't represent us, so they have primary challengers. Whether they win or not is a different story, but that's something that we're seeing crop up a little bit. You know, Olivia, this is why I'm glad I left, because because there, I would rather do a Rubik's Cube that is in Mandarin Chinese than figure out what is happening when Jimmy Jordan, who is the darling of the right, and that was true when I was there, in fact, the very first conversation I ever had with Paul Ryan was, who should I vote for in kind of an inter-Republican party race? And he looked at me and said, Jim Jordan, what are you even thinking about? Everyone, everyone. I mean, Jimmy Jordan, like, transcended all different kind of wings, and he is a hero, darling, whatever word we want to use. He gave the nominating speech for Kevin McCarthy, mm-hmm. a passionate nominating speech. He stood by Kevin McCarthy for all 10 months and defended him at the very end. Yep. And yet the activists or the base don't care enough about his opinion to listen to him on something like that. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know that Kevin had a more ardent supporter than Jimmy, maybe French Hill, maybe McHenry. I I mean, maybe Garrett Graves. Yep. I think Jordan, that was something that we watched almost in real time, which was Jordan used to be seen as this threat. And then McCarthy slowly played a game of welcoming him into the fold. So then he became judiciary, well, first oversight chair and then judiciary chair. And then the relationship just blossomed. And it was almost like Jim Jordan played like a little bit of a translator. McCarthy would want to do something. Jordan would listen to it, probably give him some feedback, go to the Freedom Caucus, present it. He was very much sort of the the middleman in many ways for um, McCarthy. So he was essential. And um, him, you know, I think we see this sometimes where even if someone says something that doesn't, and, and you worship them as a hero, doesn't mean you're going to, you're going to follow them. No, I mean, and I know you remember this because you sat there for every single second of impeachment when it was being done out of House Intel. But Kevin put Jimmy on House Intel, mm-hmm. which is a highly coveted committee. Yep. Put him on there. No, they're both of those guys are not good at carrying grudges. So I'm not whatever differences may have arose after I left. I'm not surprised they put it behind them. Yep. And Kevin gave a very passionate speech on behalf of Jimmy when Jimmy was up for speaker. Yep. I just, I, I just, all right, let me, let me switch over the oversight before I let you go back to work. It seemed like the Democrats were at loggerheads, if we can use a law school term with one another, over Israel. Mm-hmm. And some of that seemed pretty personal and real. Is that still around or have they patched up their differences? No, oh, no. And I don't think you're going to see them patch up their differences because, Usually we're talking about a huge split within the Republican Party, but here you have a very different dynamic where some are very pro-Israel and then you have some who are pro-basically, well, 
there's there's levels. So some want ceasefire and they say what happened was wrong. Some say um, what Hamas did was within the bounds of, you know, basically arguing that Israel is an apartheid state, like that's their talking point. So it depends who you ask, but they're they're conflicting over basically, do you support Palestine? Do you support Israel? Do you support ceasefire? And and Biden has been very much taking on the message of being pro, pro-Israel to the detriment of some of the, his progressives. And you're watching him sort of having to wipe this, walk this tightrope. And foreign policy is not usually a top sort of presidential issue area. Um, so I think that that might work in his favor, but he's got very low approval ratings with, I think, like a younger constituency, a voting voting group over how he's handled this war because they don't, they want more aid going into Gaza. They want a ceasefire. They feel like um, he's not handled the situation well. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right, I'm going to ask you two more questions. One of which I'm going to spring on you, but I'm springing it on you because I respect your opinion. I like you personally, even if we may happen to disagree about a particular issue, which we may or may not hear. There was a study done at a Syracuse University. Less than 4% of journalists slash reporters identify as Republican. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that 96% identify as Democrat or progressive. It doesn't mean that. I don't know. I would think Democrats and progressives out would I would I would hope they would outpoll 3.6% and I think they do but I I began by introducing you as saying I have I literally have no clue what your politics are I've talked to you a hundred times I really don't know yep that's rare though to me it is rare so we need a media that even if you don't like them you respect them yes so when you see studies like that that like less than four identify as Republican. What's your reaction? What drew you into journalism? And is it possible, you and I've talked about human nature a lot, about carrying grudges, not carrying grudges. Is it possible and still commercially responsible to like separate your work from your personal beliefs? I think it's so important too. And I, I would, you know, I sort of take the view if you have if you're an ideologue like being a reporter probably would be a really tough career path for you because how do you not turn that into activism but i don't identify i mean i get asked all the time and i always say you can ask and then i just say i don't i don't take a side um you can try to figure it out but usually when both sides are throwing tomatoes at you you know you know you did something right but um it's not a conversation that I'll go up and ask a person, so what are you? Um, you know, if you are care about your career, your goal is to never let anyone feel like they know what you are. So why would you identify? So why would you identify as a Democrat or Republican unless, you know, there's situations where people are just more and more calling themselves journalists because they're releasing information, but they're not, they're not people that I would trust their motives or their news source. And we're kind of getting into like the blog sphere where they can call themselves journalists, but I'm, I might have a different sort of opinion of um, what they really do. 
All right, you may not remember this, but John Lee Ratcliffe and I would routinely walk past every reporter that was outside judiciary or whatever room we were in, except you. You, you may not remember that. We we were not, we would not win any popularity contest with people that were working the hill beat. I wouldn't win it with you either, but we certainly I do remember you playing some games with me though. Like one time on the house floor, I pointed at you and you said me. And I said, yes, as in come talk to me. And you sent John Ratcliffe out in your stead. Uh, that was because John is so knowledgeable. I thought you had a legal question. <laughs> I mean, John did better than I did in trust in the States. I thought you wanted a will or something. <laughs> All right. Here's the thing. Th th this is why John and I stopped and talked to you. Mm -hmm. I never thought that you had the story written before you asked me questions. I really thought if I, and I and, and there were examples of where, like, if you talk to a Democrat, they're going to say, all right, this is why they're doing this. If it's Comey, if it's Clinton, if it's, you know, fill in the blank. But I never got the feeling that you'd already written the story and just wanted to check the box. Oh, we talked to a Republican, too, for, quote, balance. Yep. I never felt that way with you. But I walked past a lot of people that I kind of did feel like it, the story's written. And, and I just need to say I talk to the other side. So let, I, I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you that. What drew you to journalism? Because I've been trying to get you to law school and you won't do it. So what drew you to that? Well, I'd always sort of had an interest in journalism. I thought about documentary film. Turns out. I don't like sitting at a computer editing for hours. I'm bad with a camera. I don't have a great understanding of how things look. And I kind of went back and forth until, you know, a bad experience in my community, um, which was about a bad news article. And I felt like it didn't fairly capture a lot of voices. I felt like it missed a lot of things. There was the echo chamber um, and uh, it didn't represent my view as a woman on a campus when it was about sexual assault. And I just remember thinking, I can do better than this. And, uh, you know, sharing that story, people would always sort of look at me and be like, oh, that's interesting, because they'd always heard reporters cite good examples of journalism, like, you know, the Watergate and uh, Woodward and uh, as motivations for getting into journalism. Mine was a bad example. Um, but, you know, if it's the same kind of, I think, message that we've seen with other industries. If you don't like what you're seeing, get involved. But you will also see that the people who are pretending to be referees of saying this is a good or bad journalism are sometimes motivated. Like I've had people who have given me quotes and they're quoted in my story. But then, you know, the story they're saying, you know, maybe like I don't want Donald Trump to be president. And then I'll post a story with them on background and then they're on social media being like, that's not true. And so they're, they're dunking on my reporting when it's the exact same person. And so you see a little, you see duplicity, you see kind of people like trying to undermine reporting when they know it will hurt them politically, even if the reporting is accurate. So there's that kind of creates a, an element where like, we're not trusted, but like, I want to say like, well, don't trust them. They're the motivated ones too. Like, yes, we make mistakes, but you're, the referees aren't always fair in reverse. You're not suggesting that someone might privately say that, 
former President Trump was a demonic force and then yet also be willing to be his vice president. Are you? I mean, you're not saying like duplicity exists in that. No, never. All right. We're going to end on a happy note. Tell us what we're not paying attention to. We're not what we because the listener may very well be paying attention to it. Tell me what somebody who's addicted to college sports and really doesn't follow politics like he ought to. What should I be watching? What what not? I don't want a prediction because you're not a psychic or maybe you are. But what are you watching that maybe we're not thinking about? Well, House of Dragons is coming back in the spring on HBO, but uh... <laughs> that, that I knew. Oh, not that! that. I not that. Knew. <laughs> that and True Detective comes out Sunday, so that I knew. Um, I think the things that I'm keeping an eye on for is how Republican leaders and maybe the body more generally is shaped by the presidential election. Do you see? Who do you see starting to echo different candidates? Um, are they auditioning for certain things? And also what redistricting looks like are the new recruits for Republicans more in the MAGA view, or are they going to be more team players? Because that will dictate if the 2023 and 2024 drama that we're, we're bracing for carries into another term. So those are sort of some of the, the longer story lines that I'm looking at right now. Well, you have a fascinating job. And, and during the intro, I, I'm sure you appreciate this, too. I mean, you have not been doing this. I mean, you are still a very young person. And for you to have seen all that you have seen, multiple impeachments, the January 6th, which I never in a million years thought I would see that. Mm-hmm. You've seen a ton. In a Doris Santos ouster, the yes. Kevin McCarthy motion to vacate. It's um, I honestly, I didn't either. And, and I didn't know that unprecedented would be the biggest word in my you know, life word bubble <laughs> in terms of <laughs> well, what I cover. But I could think of worse words to be in your I mean, indicted. <laughs> that's a worse word to have in your there life. Are a few, there are a few SOSs in there as well, you know. <laughs> well, I can't wait till you get out of journalism and go to law school so I can quit saying that there's at least one I like. <laughs> I, it really bothers me to say that. So when you leave, then I feel actually they're a bunch. They're actually a bunch that I like and respect. And we need people. I mean, I I, I would I do. This is a little, my little, little grandfatherly advice. I, start thinking about institutions and the media and the role it plays to be unafraid and speak truth to power and educate people and not be afraid to bring them the facts. I mean, we absolutely need that to remain a functioning republic. Uh, we probably also need a house that doesn't resemble WWE wrestling. <laughs> so that's my hope for 2024 is that we get closer to that. But you got a job and I'm quasi-retired, so I got to let you go. Thank you for joining <laughs> us again. And Great we will you, talk Jay. the next time a member is indicted or expelled. I promise. Okay. Yeah, deal. Deal. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.